Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. On this episode, I'll be talking about the Japanese yen. Before I begin, as we are recording this, we just received the news that former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe who was the longest serving premier in Japan's history and only stepped down two years ago, was assassinated in cold blood. This comes just days before parliamentary elections in Japan and is clearly a horrific event that overshadows what I'll be discussing today. Abe was 67 years old. But this podcast is about the sharp decline of the yen. The yen has fallen this year precipitously and is now at a 24-year low against the U.S. dollar. It is at a 50-year low if you look at it on a real effective exchange rate basis. What does that mean? It means if you compare the yen to other currencies based on the trading arrangements that Japan has and remove the inflationary aspects that happen between countries and their exchange rates, then the yen is at a 50-year low. So basically, the current fall of the yen is a pretty big deal. So let's dive into the obvious question here. Why has the yen weakened so dramatically? First off, the war in Ukraine has impacted the yen, as it has many global economies, by exacerbating supply chain disruptions and harming commodity importing. And Japan is a significant commodity importer, particularly energy imports. And after Russia invaded Ukraine, for instance, the yen depreciated against the U.S. dollar by a further 6%. However, the real driver of the decline in the yen appears to be interest rate differentials. Interest rate differentials is a fancy economic geek way of saying that there are growing differences in monetary policy between or among jurisdictions. For instance, in the United States, the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates in March and has accelerated such increases over the coming months and has signaled that it is far from done. In Europe, the European Central Bank has begun to tighten monetary policy and has strongly suggested that it will also be raising interest rates probably as early as this month. The Bank of Japan, on the other hand, has strongly signaled that it intends to maintain highly accommodative monetary policy, better known as loose monetary policy, in an effort to avoid deflation as opposed to addressing inflation. The result is that the interest rate differences between the United States 10-year bond yields and Japanese bonds have spiked roughly 350% since 2020. To put it simply, holding dollar-backed bonds provides you a much higher return than yen-backed bonds, which is a catalyst for selling the yen and buying dollars, and voila, a depreciation of the yen. Let me expand for a moment on Japan's monetary policy and give some background on how the Bank of Japan has traditionally dealt with currency depreciation. To start, the G7 countries over time have reached a consensus, which is that major currencies should float freely and that markets should determine currency rates. The idea is to stop major economies from intervening in currency markets in an attempt to become more competitive. Sometimes this is referred to as beggar thy neighbor policies. Historically, Japan intervened a fair amount in currency markets, usually to weaken the yen, much more frequently, in fact, than its fellow G7 members. This became very prominent in the 1990s and to a lesser extent in the 2000s, 
And to be frank, it caused a number of political headaches as U.S. politicians and policymakers believed Japan was doing this in a somewhat manipulative way to make its firms more competitive in the international marketplace than American firms. However, currency interventions, particularly unilateral ones by developed countries, have largely proved ineffective at addressing what are typically underlying flaws in the macroeconomic environment. And eventually, Japan's policymakers seem to come around to agreeing with this analysis, and their interventions have wound down, and frankly, they're hardly ever done now. In other words, the Japanese Ministry of Finance largely now has a very hands-off approach when it comes to currency interventions. A second part of recent history of Japan's monetary policy and currency policy is not about currency interventions, but about the overall economy. Starting in the 1990s, Japan has dealt with long-lasting deflation. Deflation, by the way, is an overall fall in prices across an economy. It can be even more disruptive than inflation, as it harms consumption, it harms production, and it puts borrowers in a very, very difficult position. So to tackle deflation, the Bank of Japan has pursued very aggressive quantitative easing, particularly since 2013, when former Prime Minister Abe appointed Governor Kuroda to head the Bank of Japan. The goal of Governor Kuroda was to raise Japan to an inflation target of 2% from its previous deflationary economy. This has not really happened despite the aggressive monetary policy. Although it has gotten inflation to be positive, it just hasn't gotten to the 2% target until very, very recently. And that includes, in terms of aggressive monetary policy, the 2016 introduction of something called yield curve control. Without getting too technical, and by the way, it is quite technical, yield curve control was set up for the Bank of Japan to target short-term and long-term policy interest rates to reach this inflation target of 2%. Yield curve control anchors Japan's yield curve even as global yields rise. For those unfamiliar with this topic, a yield curve plots interest rates of bonds having equal credit quality but differing maturity dates. In the current environment, it has forced the Bank of Japan to buy an extraordinary amount of Japanese government bonds to maintain its commitment. So how badly is Japan hurting from a weakened yen? It might seem strange, but traditionally, Japanese policymakers favored a weaker yen as it makes Japanese exports more competitive overseas. However, the current growing weakness of the yen has been worrisome to the Japanese government, as it is now impacting households and businesses as the rise in the cost of imported goods, and by the way, for example, 90% of Japan's energy consumption comes from imports, is decreasing consumer spending and delaying business investments. Also, as Japan has traditionally faced deflation, the country is now actually starting to worry about inflation. And in April, it went above the BOJ's 2% target for the first time in many years. And this growing inflation combined with a falling yen has exacerbated the increasing cost of imports. One thing that is interesting to me is the dog that has not barked. What is that? So when I used to work at the U.S. Treasury Department in the 1990s and 2000s, when the yen drastically fell, people would, to be technical, freak out. And our phones would start ringing off the hook that we at the Treasury Department needed to do something. We had to counteract this. Japan is a manipulator. We needed to do something about it. However, we haven't seen this type of reaction from political leaders or policymakers since Japan's yen has been falling recently. 
I think this is due to a few factors. From a pure economics perspective, we're witnessing two very different monetary policies when we're looking at the United States and Japan. So logically, the yen would weaken compared to the dollar. Second, the U.S. and other Western nations are le much less focused on, on Japan and much more worried about China, and for that matter, Russia. And so what is happening in Japan's currency is not as important. And third, I think, is that industrial sector, which could be affected by a weakening currency in a competitive standpoint, is probably much more worried about supply chain disruptions and the war in Ukraine than it is on exchange rates. I guess the last question I'd like to ask is, will the BOJ intervene or will they keep business as usual? As I stated earlier, Japan historically has intervened, but with little success, which has led them to take a more hands-off approach in recent years. As currency intervention is costly and could negatively impact economic growth and may fail, I'm unconvinced that the Ministry of Finance will want to intervene to strengthen the yen. A different point is that currency depreciation may be running out of steam. And this is because there's growing evidence of global recession, which if true, would slow down the Fed and the ECB and other countries from tightening monetary policy, which could mean that interest rates will move sharply actually in favor of the yen, putting appreciation pressure on the yen as opposed to depreciation pressure. Now for the three, two, one. My three takeaways are, one, the yen has weakened substantially, particularly over the past few months. Next, though current global crises have impacted the Japanese yen, the real weakness against the dollar can be linked to differing monetary policies between the United States and Japan. And finally, while Japanese policymakers and global economists are concerned about the weakening yen, global leaders have not seemed overly worried by the fact that the currency of the world's third largest economy has sank to a 24-year low against the dollar. The two things to watch for, one, I'm interested to see how and if other countries in Asia react to the weakening of the yen. Will they treat Japan differently now that Japan's currency has depreciated so dramatically? And also, if the yen starts to strengthen, will this have spillover effects on the rest of Asia? Second, our economists at the IIF predict that due to the growing fears of a global recession, rate differentials are likely to move in favor of the yen strengthening. Our chief economist, Robin Brooks, just put out a piece this week giving his analysis to that effect. My one sports topic for this week is Wimbledon. This is the oldest tennis tournament in the world played at the All England Club in Wimbledon, London. What makes it so unique besides its history and its pageantry is that it is still played on grass courts. But I thought that there were two interesting stories to focus on in this year's championship. On the downside, Wimbledon banned any tennis player from Russia or Belarus from playing in the championship. This included the number one men's tennis player in the world, Daniel Medvedev, and a number of top women players. Quite frankly, this is ridiculous. It's one thing to ban the Russian team from the Olympics or World Cup or some other sporting event where they are clearly representing their country. But Wimbledon is a place where tennis players represent themselves. It strikes me as discrimination based on where you were born. One of my kids, for instance, was rooting for Rafael Nadal, who is Spanish, against an American in the quarterfinals. I'm sure my kid is plenty patriotic, but he was rooting for an individual, not for a country. On the upside, Unz Jabbar 
of Tunisia has become the first woman, or man for that matter, who happens to be Arabic as well as African to reach a Grand Slam final. While exciting from a country perspective, this is clearly the talents of one individual. And the woman she beat in the semifinals, Tatjana Maria from Germany, is one of the few women in the history of tennis who is also a mother to make the semifinals. Maybe more remarkably, Maria is one of only seven women who are 34 or older that has ever made a semifinal in a major. The difference is that all of these other women were multiple Grand Slam winners. In other words, they had been champions for many, many years. Maria, on the other hand, had never been past the third round in a major in over 15 years of competing in these types of championships. The semifinal, just so you know, represents the sixth round, not the third or the fourth round. You got to give credit to her. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And join me next week for another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.